Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Jeremy, how you doing this week? Good, man. It's been fun. Oh, I'm glad you're having fun. That's always a, a positive thing. Yeah. I'm having less fun. Less, less fun? <laughs> less fun. You were pausing and I was like, maybe I shouldn't ask him. It's one of those ones where you just don't bother asking because you don't want to know. You know, we, we GA'd a bunch of stuff what, a week or two ago now. And so it's that lull between planning and prioritizing and researching and things don't work and why don't they work and last minute calls about what you just released and questions or bugs. So it's a little crazy. <laughs> But that's the job. All good. <laughs> the life of a production developer. What did you find on the interwebs this week? So a couple things uh, that are Microsoft-ish, I, I want to call them. Um, one is a, a, a post from uh, Rabia that talks about multi-tenant architecture for SAAS apps. And I say Microsoft-ish because it's on the tech community. Oh, I guess that really is. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is the dev blog. So this is official Microsoft-y yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, this is official. Official, official. yeah. So Robbie Williams and um, Bob German are both dev advocates in the M365 developer space. I, Bob was internal in the field. Robbie was external MVP. And they've been, in, they've been inside for a while now. I got to present with Robbie at Build, which was fun. But uh, yeah, I watched this episode, actually. It was really good because... Robbie is live coding for it. And Bob's kind of like the horse commentator in the background, you know, like explaining it as she goes. So it's kind of fun. It's a good format for consuming things. Yes, I bookmarked this one and wanted to read about it. Not not necessarily expecting to see new stuff, but to see how other folks describe it and, and stuff. So I, uh, I also have it on my list and uh, maybe I should just take a break and go watch this one. So uh, thanks to, yeah. to those two for doing that. It's kind of nice because it talks a lot about like how you should set up your authority so that it's either slash common or your actual directory ID and, and things like that so that you go from being single tenant to multi-tenant and different account types and things. Which is nice because back in the day, we were kind of uh, cautioned against flipping the bits on that. Correct. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. nice to see that's come along, right? That, that's yeah. good stuff. And then I found one. Yeah, the, the, I haven't read about this one. It, it's uh, another thing on my list to look at. So uh, what, what's this uh, Blazor stuff, right? <laughs> well, it's Blazor stuff with WebAssembly inside of Azure Static Web Apps, which is getting a lot of traction because it's something that was asked for for a long time in Azure, primarily because some of their competitors had something similar for a wee while before that. Um, I actually use this with my brother on a bunch of his uh, websites that he does for his photography, uh, commercial photography he does in Australia. And uh, man, it's cheap. It's like ridiculously cheap to run websites and static web apps. And uh, he actually hosts all of his like uh, 3D models that you can view just because, you know, they're just a bunch of JPEG files with HTML and some really fancy JavaScript. It doesn't need any backend code and so it just runs. Uh, but this post by Justin Yu actually explains um, how he's running a web app inside of static web apps using MSAL, using the graph, calling Azure AD. But he just does all the steps through it and explains why at each stage and what things you have to pull in to configure it and so forth. So if you're doing anything around Blazor, it's super useful just to kind of understand how to plug it all in. Um, I've actually flicked this to our team because we don't have a good Blazor getting started page. And so we should probably go speak to Justin about bringing this into our graph site. So um, yeah, it's just good if you're doing anything in that space and you're calling the graph, super useful to see how he's done it. 
Yeah, the 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 static web apps thing. Should I remember? I remember having a HTML generator back in the day when the web first started, and that was the way to go. And then we got smart and said we can do some pro logic in the background, and and now we're getting even smarter and going back to where we began, which is kind of nice. But uh, I'm trying to think of the CMS that I used to use. Oh my, that was like a. It was like Red Dot. It was a very expensive web content management system, but Red Dot always used to like export as static HTML from like dynamic stuff that was done in Cold Fusion, I think, from memory. It was one of the first CMSs I used and, and it was a super fast website because, you know, it wasn't doing anything in the background. It just rendered HTML yeah, exactly. to the browser. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. We have gone full circle. Yes, and, and uh, Blazor in the uh, in the in the browser. Full circle for would would be punch cards, though, right? <laughs> Not come on, like you're pretending here. Like, static HTML would have been my thing. Full circle. I I gotta believe the the number of listeners who used punch cards is is <laughs> smaller than a number of hosts who used punch cards. <laughs> <laughs> I was remember my grandfather, he worked at IBM and, you know, like every time I go around there, he'd be like, so what are you doing at Microsoft? And I used to travel back to England and he'd like ring me on all the stuff that he used to do with punch cards. Rest in peace, granddad. But uh, yeah, it's just funny bringing that all back full circle. Yeah. With, although with Blazor, that'd be interesting to, it's, it's on my list to get to, but uh, it's kind of hard to. Yeah, I have done zero yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. So um, moving on to some community blog posts. Once again, Marcus Moeller. Marcus, thanks so much, man. You're pu pumping stuff out like crazy. It's like three or four weeks in a row now we've, we've mentioned him. But uh, this week's blog post is Microsoft Teams meeting apps. Mm -hmm. And this isn't necessarily new. I know it's been around for a while, but it's in typical Marcus fashion, step-by-step -step go through screenshots, how to set up a Microsoft Teams app that... Um, hangs out in the meetings <laughs> and talks about um, the different things you can do. There's, I know meeting life cycles has pre and post and during. And so I, again, I haven't dug deep into this, but uh, good to get something started. And with following his steps here, you'll have the basics ready to go. Just boom, off you go. So thanks, Marcus, for posting on that. Yeah, there's some really cool scenarios with bots and that life cycle event stuff too, with like knowing when the meeting started and when it's ended and being able to inquire the graph to find out, you know, different things during the meeting. Um, so yeah, definitely check this out if you're doing anything in that space. There is um, a huge gap in the market right now around all this stuff. Um, and some of it can be copycatted from other competing platforms and built into M365 ecosystem. So it's been fun seeing what ISPs are doing in this space. So uh, yeah, go check that out. It's good to see Marcus sharing that. And then the, the last community one kind of transitions into our show this week. Uh, on, on the show, we had Maisa and Daryl on to talk about the Graph SDK. So before we go into that, I'm going to put a link to uh, a blog post of mine. I was actually on the... Community Cloudcast webinar, which is run by Eric Shups and Jason Himmelstein and Paul McCollum. Yeah, I went through the community library that I've worked on, we talked about before, but this is just a way to step through. I updated it to V4 so you can go see that in action, uh, leveraging some of the great new SDK stuff that Maiza and Daryl were chatting about. And thanks to those two for coming on and, and getting us an update on that. And uh uh, well, off we go. We'll see you guys next time. See you, folks. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Meza 
and a return to Daryl. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Thanks for having us, Paul. Let's start with you, Meza. Will you please introduce yourself and correct your name <laughs> pronunciation as I tend to mess those up? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, it's, um, so my name is Meza. Uh, I'm a program manager on the Microsoft Graph uh, Developer Experiencing Team. I joined Microsoft uh, December last year, so nine months here now. And I have been working with the SDKs for Microsoft Graph since then. Excellent. And Daryl, please refresh our memory. What is it you do again? I think you're just the god of all APIs, right? I try and cause as much trouble as possible in as many different areas as possible. <laughs> uh, primarily <laughs> well working as an API architect, helping people bring APIs to Microsoft Graph in the most consistent and developer delightful way possible. Yeah, basically, you have Daryl to thank that some of these APIs don't go out the door in the initial designs <laughs> that PM teams think they should do. That's excellent stuff. And so we're, we've gathered today to talk about a handful of announcements that have come out of this team. Uh, Paul's favorite, of course, is the .NET 4 SDK v4. Uh, in addition, there's been a JavaScript release, and um, I know the CLI PowerShell stuff has been a blip. So let's let's start with you know the high level view. What what is in this last semester or so, last couple of months? Give us your your, your overview of what's new for developers and why we why we want to care about what this latest stuff is coming out. Talking about PowerShell stuff, we released the four, and we have like uh, some of uh, greatest things there. So we switched from the old authentication library to use now the Azure Ident library uh, to have like alignment across all the SDKs, covering more of the scenarios uh, that we didn't support before. And now we uh, removed the old newtonsoft.json uh, and we added the system.text.json serializer to the v4. These allow us to remove uh, some dependencies issues because we are removing a third-party dependence and we are moving for first-party serializer. Uh, we also added the reach uh, the reach notification in the v4. So now uh, we have native support to decrypt the resource data in reach notification payloads. Uh, so people can count on functions to validate tokens and decrypt content in notification payloads. And we also had a bunch of cleaning in the new um, v4 and added like things as graph response object so people can access state code uh, and also headers from the response in an easy way that uh, it was not not possible before so hang on, so with that with that stuff like it, what surprised me what you were saying there with the event receivers, I wasn't aware of that. Does that mean that you're seeing a lot of usage of PowerShell in Azure Functions as a as a runtime to, you know, like if someone's setting up a change notification to trigger an Azure function, they're using PowerShell to like handle the event. Is that why there was demand to do that or? No, it, it's, it, the Azure identity is about alignment of uh, the way that you pass credentials yeah. to uh, the RSDKs. It will eventually filter through to bring benefits in the Azure functions because uh, the nice thing about Azure identity is they implement managed identity yeah, yeah. as a way of uh, getting uh, 
credentials. And so that's something that now all of a sudden we don't have to go and re-implement because we can just leverage the work that the Azure Identity team is doing. And so you'll see more and more of those kind of things where uh, we're leveraging the stuff that's coming out of the Azure Identity team. Right. So you benefit from that. And, and I interpreted Mesa's comment to say it was a lowercase f. There are functions in the SDK that will do that decryption instead of me having to write them myself, not necessarily being something in Azure Functions, capital F. <laughs> but you were, were you talking about PowerShell with those announcements then or .NET? Maybe I missed that bridge. Uh, yes, it's about .NET before. Ah, uh, okay. I heard the word PowerShell and clung to that, but then you started talking about announcements for .NET. There we go. That <laughs> makes more sense. It was going to surprise me if people were run, using PowerShell as a runtime for like change notifications in Azure Functions. But no, that that's cool. But in theory, they could, right? I, I think the, the work that you folks have done right. would support that scenario, yes? Yes. Excellent. And, and so um, just to wrap up the new thing, so then what, what's new in the JavaScript world uh, as part of these initial or these big announcements that we're covering? So we'll start there with the high level on what's the, what's in JavaScript. So we have the, the three point release, zero release of JavaScript, and we've done a lot of updates around using the MSAL tool. So we now have the MSAL browser support and uh, MSAL node. And so uh, that was something that was missing previously. We've done a bunch of work around um, large file uploads or some scenarios that weren't supported in there. Um, and it just generally a, a bunch of bug fixes. But I mean, really where we are going with, with JavaScript um, is as, as we have been promising for quite a while now, uh, we want to bring this kind of fluent request builders to JavaScript and TypeScript. And so you won't have to be able to remember exactly what the URL is and you'll get a nice um, autocomplete dotted experience for being able to find all of the resources in the ever-growing Microsoft Graph. And so that is something that we are putting a, investing a lot of time in now in order to build uh, this fluent experience. Well, let, let's refresh our folks. What does fluent style mean when I'm writing code? What does that really mean? Yeah, and I have to be really careful because technically it's not fluent because the fluent style is you call an object on an object and it returns back the same object and it's a way of configuring a same object, which is why I use the word fluent style. And what it means is I, Microsoft Graph is an HTTP API where everything is divided into a hierarchy. And when you're calling just with HTTP, it's got path segments. And we take that same organizational structure and bring it into code. So if you work in .NET, you can go to the client and say, um, me.mailfolders.messages.attachments. And you can pass parameters in there and we'll construct that URL for you. And along the way, we'll give you context-sensitive IntelliSense as to whether you can get on something or post on it or whether you can do selects or expands. And so that is a kind of what we call this fluent experience. Whereas today in JavaScript, you say, I want to call the API and go and retrieve from this path. And you open quotes and you type this big long URL and you insert the parameters yourself and make sure you escape things properly. And then you can, you can call that URL. And with the, with the fluent API, we'll take a lot of that work away from you and hopefully reduce the errors that you make. That's great because I'm used to the .NET stuff and I love it. it it's it's 
Perfect, you know, because I don't want to remember all that crazy stuff. That's that's certainly certainly helpful there. And then the the last announcement, the message that we we kind of hit at the beginning, we should dive a little deeper into is the uh, preview CLI. So, what does CLI mean when it comes to Microsoft Graph? Uh, CLI is largely the same as the PowerShell. It's a little bit like I, I like to call it the kind of the tabs versus spaces or the, the, the Vi versus Emacs decision. Some developers like doing things one way. Some developers like doing the other way. Uh, PowerShell is very popular with our longtime Microsoft ecosystem. Um, the CLI is basically just, it's a command line executable and you can run it in any shell and you just pass arguments to that executable and under the covers, we make the calls to Microsoft Graph and it returns back a JSON payload that you can then transform and extract interesting data out of it. So um, it, it is built uh, using the same infrastructure that we built the PowerShell mechanisms with, leveraging the AutoRest tooling. And we take our metadata for the graph and we feed it into a converter, convert it to OpenAPI, send it to AutoRest. AutoRest then generates a bunch of uh, CLI extensions and then we package it up and ship it out as an EXE. We have work to do. We are still trying to shape all the set of commands uh, Azure itself has a fairly mostly kind of two-tier type of system where they have a service and then they have resources and then they have commands. And so auto-generating that command hierarchy is fairly straightforward in graph. It is a much more deeply nested structure. So you can easily have users mail folders, messages, attachments. And so we're working on trying to massage the CLI into having a nice coherent set of command infrastructure across all of the surface area. So, but uh, yeah, that will give you the same experience as PowerShell for those people who feel like not using PowerShell. So Maiza, from uh, the differences, like obviously it must be interesting as a PM because owning like the .NET SDK, which is more of like, Paul's world where he's building backend. I mean, you basically, you build backend services and call it from front end, right? But that allows you to stay in .NET. And then the other audience is PowerShell and CLI. What is the persona of that person? Like, how does that differ for you? Like, is there different decisions that you're having to make in shipping PowerShell and CLI versus like doing a .NET JavaScript one? Because typically like, I mean, Paul, do you even use PowerShell? I use PowerShell, I don't use the CLI. But yeah, I use PowerShell. A lot of, yeah. But, yeah. You, but you actually use it yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it is kind of different developing for um, developers and uh, people that normally using PowerShell and CLI are more IT admins. So maybe uh, the kind of scenarios that they want is different. And normally they want things more easy and um a easy way to do uh, and call only a few scenarios, only a few paths and endpoints. So I, I think it is uh, it is different. And as I am new as a PM, I'm still working how to differentiate uh, these two kind of uh, persons, uh, these two kind of people. And I'm trying to understand what is better for both and try to ship like the better experience for .NET and for PowerShell. Yeah, I guess like the, the syntax of a PowerShell 
person is to me it was a bit of a learning curve as coming from a dev space and Paul I'm sure you're the same right Daryl's nodding his head yeah right well so I, and I think the key thing well here's some feedback for, for the PMs right I, I write some code that does something and if I need to talk with an IT pro or someone who's not as well versed and I'm talking about a certain segment or a certain object in the SDK how do we translate that to a, a PowerShell or a CLI command so so you're talking about driving some consistency I think is is the right path to go down because again if I'm talking about attachments how do I get to those attachments <laughs> and, and trying to confuse it so certainly is is worthwhile at least for our SDKs, uh, our PowerShell SDK tries to mirror the same uh, behavior uh, that we have uh, across all the other languages. So we mirror the endpoint in Java and JavaScript and .NET and also in PowerShell. So we are trying to uh, have this consistency uh, between all the languages. I guess that definitely helps if you're, I mean, my experience talking to developers is that if they're calling the craft, typically they do it in one place. They're either like 100% client side calling it client side, or they've got a back end and they're kind of doing all the, the logic and the calls at the, on the back end side. But if you were doing a mixture of both, it would make it a lot easier if the JavaScript one felt the same as the .NET one and not like completely different, which I guess it is right now, Daryl, because you're having to put the string calls in the paths and which is not necessarily the same as just dot events and things like that. It's a fascinating balance between making something that feels very natural for that language developer and keeping our sanity by maintaining consistency across the, the different SDKs. But it, it's it's fascinating working with the, uh, the PowerShell community, uh, and they have been absolutely awesome during this process of working on the Microsoft Graph uh, PowerShell commandlets. We've had so much input and uh, constructive criticism uh, as we've gone through the process of, of producing the PowerShell. And I, 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 they, they amuse me, the community, because most of them are just wickedly smart and they play the, it has to be really easy in PowerShell. We don't want to have to look at GUIDs. We, we, want, want, we want these things to be easy. I'm like, I say dude, but in, in, in a non-gendered way, like you, you can do this stuff, right? Our C-sharp developers are quite happy to put up with, <laughs> with having to deal with GUIDs and stuff. But yeah, no, I, they've been fabulous and they've, they've definitely helped us make a much better product uh, than what we started off. And, and we are continuing to do a lot of improvement. But uh, from, from a persona perspective, it is, it is very interesting how they play the it has to be really easy to use this. And when you when all you are doing is projecting out from an, a, an API into a PowerShell command, sometimes there's nothing that you can do about the shape of it because it's the shape of the API. Mm -hmm. And if the underlying API is funky, then the PowerShell command is going to be funky. <laughs> and we've, we've started having those experiences where PowerShell people are like, this makes us sense. And we're like, yeah, the API underneath doesn't make any sense either. Let's, let's feed that back to the team and see if we can actually improve the API. So, Mazer, in, in those instances with PowerShell, are you fixing the API and staying purist on the output of the SDK? Or are there some cases where, like you mentioned the rich notifications uh, in .NET, like do you do additional things in the SDK to like clean up the API? Like, And I guess Daryl might have some opinions on this as well, but it's interesting what yours are too. Yeah, so uh, the idea of uh, having the PowerShell SDK in such a big 
API as Microsoft Graph, it's kind of difficult to have to shape all the commandlets and to do all this custom stuff to be good as the PowerShell community wants. So right now, what we do is mirror the API. So uh, as Daryl said before, like if the API is doing something and is requiring a set of uh, parameters there, uh, the same occurs in our uh, PowerShell command list. We have a way to customize some of those things. Uh, normally uh, is done by the owner of the API because they know better how the commandlet should be looking to match the endpoint. Uh, but if we have uh, sort of ways to customize and create uh, new commandlets. So there was, uh, uh, going back probably well before your time is, I'm sure, but there was this concept of tasks or things that the SDK can do on my behalf, one of them being like large file uploads or or paging to you know, go to the next page of results. So in PowerShell, are you doing some of that stuff for us? So I do, or do I have to worry about paging myself, for example? If I pipe something to a pipeline, do I need to worry about the paging that happens or are you guys covering that? Yeah, so uh, we... For piping specifically, uh, we have something in our roadmap to enable it to be to be good in our PowerShell because uh, today we have some uh, old data casting problems if you try to pipe something. Uh, so we have this in our uh, roadmap, but uh, for now uh, we are still working on this kind of situation in scenarios. But page, paging is done out of the box. Uh, you can do dash all, and it will return all of the values in the collection. By default, we will just return you one page. Uh, this was another great debate with the community because it's like, you know, that's that's not how it normally works with PowerShell. It brings back all of them. Like, yeah, but you're going across the network here, and you know, there's 160,000 users in the Microsoft tenant. We don't want somebody accidentally doing get mg user and retrieving <laughs> all of those. So doing the Jeremy like copy and paste from a blog post somewhere and running it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but as far as the tasks thing, this is something that we are asking the individual teams who own the various areas to go and add functionality. Uh, Alex Simons had this great analogy. He calls it the plumbing versus the ceramics or porcelain, plumbing versus porcelain. And so we produce the plumbing commandlets that actually do the nitty gritty and do the work. And then where appropriate teams can layer uh, porcelain on top to produce a much nicer experience. And that's where things like uh, these kind of more task scenario oriented uh, PowerShell commandlets would be created. And those are going to be handcrafted. And this is why everything we do is all in an open source GitHub repo and teams can uh, layer on and add in additional commandlets. And um, the way that the auto rest generation process works is it allows us to incorporate those as part of the release. So uh, as teams add their own porcelain commandlets, uh, they can be included in, into our regular release and just feel like natural uh, Microsoft Graph commandlets. And with that, like, uh, you know, obviously a lot of the audience here are big in the PNP community that's driven kind of across Microsoft 365. Like, Mazer, when you, when you, we're designing the PowerShell and the, 
the CLI, there are kind of PMP community-led things that are a bit broader in terms of they're calling older APIs, not on graph. How are you working with, I know like Wardek is now a dev advocate and Wardek kind of created the CLI and why is his name escaping me? PowerShell, community lead. How, how are you balancing that in, in the way that you think about the graph PowerShell SDK and the graph CLI and then like how that complements what the PMP community are doing around kind of the, the stuff they're outputting? Yeah, so normally what I see is that the PNP community, when they are building their own SDK, uh, they do like a handwriting stuff. So it's more task oriented uh, than our SDK. Uh, so what we try is always to have all the Microsoft Graph endpoints to people go and use what we have uh, in Microsoft. And uh, we have like conversations with the PNP community to understand what they are doing and to let them know what we are doing in Microsoft Graph and try to align all uh, our efforts uh, to have like a great experience across um, Microsoft SDK and the PNP community. Yeah, sorry, it's Owen. I just did a quick search on their documentation. Sorry, Owen. Yeah, but so I think that's a good that's a good kind of differentiator, right? Like we're trying to make sure everything is outputted across the surface. But I do, you know, when you look at some of their stuff, they're much more scenario based on, on top, which kind of fit, closes some of those gaps, I guess on that side. So that that be, that wide area that you're discussing covering all of the services, I, I have two questions on that. One is back on CLI, how do you how do you do the naming on that, right? So we know in PowerShell, there's a subset of verbs that are going to happen. I'm doing get or list or whatever. I know what they are, right? In the, in the Azure CLI, you kind of had free reign to do whatever you wanted. Did you look at other CLIs for that, or you replicate PowerShell? How did you come up with the, with some kind of naming conventions around that? The CLIs are generated off the same Open API. The Open API generates an operation ID based off of the um, uh, the underlying CSDL OData metadata. And I mean, you, you really have two different aspects in OData. You're either dealing with things, resources, where you're doing CRUD on them, in which case the regular list, create, read, update type verbs work just fine, or uh, you're dealing with uh, actions and functions, in which case even in OData, we, we have free reign to use whatever is the most natural um, verb, so release, reject, send, w w and we will just bring those um, verbs through to the, the, the CLI. We'll just lowercase them so that it feels like it's... So so if I'm looking at a, a page on docs, then I should be able to deduce what I need to do in the command line because you're using the same source data with names and stuff like that, right? Yes, and hopefully at one point you won't have to deduce uh, we are getting very close, right, Mesa, to actually having examples in uh, our reference docs to show PowerShell, and then later CLI will come. And, and now the the next, the other question, I, I know initially when PowerShell first came out, you had mentioned in a community call, I guess, how, how you broke IntelliSense, or you, you, you had so many modules going down. And I know that there was some discussion or some thoughts around how can we do this. So can you give us an update on what, what that work is progressing into and what, what the goal is there uh, to try to offset that? We have this plan 
to go and split our SDK uh, between V1 and beta right now uh, to decrease the size of our PowerShell SDK because one of the biggest complaints that we have from our customers is that, yeah, we have modules, we can install some of them, but like it's really, really big to have um, all the PowerShell stuff that I need and things like that. Uh, so we are planning to split the SDK I'm not sure if we are going to have a stable version by the end of the year, but uh, we are working on it. Uh, but right now, we just released uh, the 1.7 version, which contains a new commandlet called uh, find image graph command that will help people to find the right command to use. And they can like uh, use uh, like find md graph command and add a URL as, for example, slash users uh, to get uh, the correspond command in Microsoft Graph PowerShell. Uh, and we will provide information such as the command name that they need to use to call this exactly uh, endpoint. Uh, we will provide uh, information as the module that command is in, uh, that's inside, uh, the HTTP command. Uh, so for example, if you use dash users, you will get like uh, two uh, responses. One, which is get mg user, and the other command let is new mg user because we have like get and post HTTP methods to the same endpoint. Uh, and we are going to provide the permissions that you need to call this command. That's what we are doing for PowerShell right now. That's really neat. I love the fact that you can get the power, the permissions because I've had a few people mainly because of the docs missing the sample snippets right now for PowerShell traversing between having the command, knowing the commands, the right command to use, but not knowing what the permissions are. So if you're gonna bring that into PowerShell, that's really neat. And obviously it sounds like you're doing the docs as well, which is great. And the other bit of feedback we always get is the knowing what, like I've had it where I'm, like, I'm not sure what module it's in, but I know what command I wanna run. So the fact that you're pointing that out is good too. Because how many modules are we up to in my ESO? Is it like there's, there must be quite a lot now with the amount of workloads we have. Not sure. Like 50 plus uh, yeah. or? Not sure, Daryl. <laughs> Do you know? I think last last count there were about thirty five. Oh, okay. It's not as that big then. But interestingly, um, we might actually be able to shrink the number of modules down. Um, the Autorus team have done a lot of perf work, uh, and it's they've improved. I, one of the reasons we had to split it was because we were feeding this our giant open API description into AutoRS and AutoRS was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't have enough memory to process that. Yeah. Um, so they've done a ton of optimization work. So we could actually reduce down the modules. Now, the net effect of that is there's less duplication between the modules. So if right, you download right. all of it, it ends up being net smaller. It does mean that individual things um, will be a little bit bigger. So we, we have to play around with that. And our other problem that we have is the fact that uh, we recently discovered that the process of converting to OpenAPI didn't find all of the paths in graph. 
And so we have been working on a new version of the OpenAPI conversion that finds a lot more. So a lot of commands that maybe were missing before, that like things for doing functions or actions on drive items weren't there. Uh, they're going to be coming in, which is going to make the whole old libraries a lot bigger uh, because we found a lot of commands that weren't previously uh, surfaced in PowerShell. Plus, we are also doing a whole bunch of investigation and work with the Exchange admin folks to surface a lot more of those commandlets. So uh, whilst we are growing, we are trying to shrink at the same time and maintain some kind of balance. You know, I spend a lot of time doing get command and filtering the results based on a module or a noun. So having your find MG grab will certainly help <laughs> save keystrokes for me piping into a find stuff, right? All right. And then, and then, one last topic I'm digging back in our history of things. There was a goal that in your team about trying to to give me a, a smaller surface area, so to speak, with with some custom generation tools. Can you give us a state of the state on that? For sure. Uh we ran into a situation where there, there was a, a number of pieces of work that we wanted to do. One was the kind of these fluent uh, uh, API for both TypeScript and for uh, PHP, because uh, we get a lot of usage out of PHP. Um, we also have had a lot of requests for Python, and we have, especially now with the AAD deprecation, AD graph deprecation, Make sure to qualify that. Oh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> you had it here first. Um, Quite the decision for the reorg. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, demand now for Go. We're getting like an email a week where somebody's going, well, where's the Go SDK? And um, the tooling that we were using for generating the SDKs was getting a little long in the tooth. And it was, it was a lot of work to bring new features and new languages. And so... After this experience of building the PowerShell where we generate the open API first before feeding into AutoRest, we decided to start down a new path where we built a new code generator that takes the open API as the input. And so this is codenamed Kyoto, um, which is the Swahili word for nest. So there's no, no Google association there, though, just, just to be absolutely sure. And uh, so the Kyoto SDK generator will allow us to move a lot faster when it comes to uh, building SDKs. And one of the neat features, again, because of the work we did in PowerShell, because we had to split it into smaller modules, we built technology that could take an open API and subset that larger open API into a smaller one with all of its dependencies. And so using the Kyoto SDK generation, we are building a tool chain that will allow you to say, hey, I have this giant open API, but I only care about this small portion of it. Uh, could you build me an SDK for just this small portion of it? So people who are building mobile apps will be able to just get an SDK that just has the functionality that they want. Uh, people who are building... Um, uh, TypeScript stuff, uh, web app spas, where they, they're concerned about the size uh, of the file that's going to get downloaded with all the request builders, they can end up including just the pieces that they want into the SDK. And this will work across all of our languages. And uh, we are, so far, our experience is that we can create new languages much, much quicker than we were able to before. Yeah, I was like, it's been really cool to see where that started and then like Vincent Ray kind of taking it on for 
the language, one of the languages and how quickly he was able to get that up and running. And now like more and more engineers are picking it up and playing with it. So it's moving fairly quickly, right? It, it is moving fairly quickly, considering like the first line of code was written over the, the Christmas break. By you. Vincent and I <laughs> yeah. started doing that. Daryl added the semicolon. We, we plotted <laughs> while everybody went away on the Christmas. We were like, okay, let's, let's churn something out. Um, and no, I mean, we we had a, uh, an intern come work with us and they he built a Ruby SDK during his internship. That's quite the internship. <laughs> yeah, well, compared to how long it would take us before. And really the key is internally, yeah. We build a code model, and the same code model is used for all of the SDKs. And then we have a refiner process that says, yeah, but Java's a bit different. Yeah, but TypeScript's a bit different. So then we manipulate the code model, and then we just have a bunch of writers that just know how to write code in a particular language. So when it comes to implementing a new language, it's a case of just tell me how to write a class and a file and a method in this particular language, and then just do a little bit of refining related to how that particular language works. So fingers crossed so far, it's been going very well for us and we are all full steam ahead on bringing the next gen of SDKs based on this tech, which will allow us to fix just, a, we have a backlog of uh, features that have been enabled across the graph that we haven't been able to get into the SDKs so far. Uh, and this will allow us to just resolve a bunch of those known issues. So assuming your backlog is not big enough and you probably don't want to get emails weekly about things, where can folks find your roadmap and or make suggestions to it? Everything's on GitHub. Microsoft Graph Org, all of our SDKs are in there. All of our SDKs are in the Microsoft Graph Org. Uh, the Kyoto project is actually in the Microsoft org, along with our OpenAPI uh, translator and our OpenAPI.NET library, because we have grander visions for for those tools. Um, amazing. So, as the you know PM on these SDKs, like I'm assuming, like you're monitoring the issues list there and triaging those with the engineering team. How does that, like a lot of developers are probably working in one repository. Like you're having to work across multiple, right? Because you're owning multiple SDKs. How does that work? Yeah. So I'm PM of some of our SDKs, not all of them. Uh, so what we normally do is that we create milestones and we add like the issues that we have in our repos to match these milestones and put some due date there uh, that uh, that is the idea when we are going to ship the new version uh, so people can go and look for these milestones and see the work that we are doing currently in each of our SDKs. Uh, and also uh, people can go and uh, use the Microsoft Q&A to ask for new features that we, are on, that we are monitoring to see if people want uh, new languages or new features that we don't have in our SDK. And we also add those things in our uh, GitHub to track the progress of those kind of um, features and bug fixes. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to keep in touch with it. It's almost like when the blog post comes out, it's like, yeah, I, I knew all that because it's all in the release notes in the GitHub repo and everything. So it's, 
I love the way that the teams are running directly in the, their repos. And I would just uh, add to that, right? So I, I subscribe to notifications in this in the .NET CLI. So when things happen, I see them. And it, it, as you said, it's no surprise. And it's great to, and maybe if I need something, I don't necessarily need to write that code because it's in the beta branch or something, or it's coming, I can work wait for it. So uh, I'm glad to see that that style of working is going awesome. Thanks a lot for that. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. Really appreciate that. Uh, look forward to the latest and greatest stuff as it comes out. I, I assume we'll we'll have you back in another six, eight months with the latest again. And so uh, thanks so much for doing that. Uh, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 